welcome. This is To a Degree, the post-secondary success podcast from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. To a Degree is about the changing face of higher education. We focus on innovative efforts underway across the country to provide every student with the opportunity to earn a college credential. Our conversations explore promising solutions and innovative policies that offer a high-quality and affordable post-secondary experience for all students. Visit toadegree.com to learn more. And now, on to the program. Greetings and welcome to To A Degree, the post-secondary success podcast of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Casey Green, the podcast moderator. Our December 2018 episode is titled The Year Ahead for Higher Education. We will explore the implications of the recent midterm elections and highlight the issues and people to watch in 2019. The November 2018 midterm elections were anything but typical. Voter turnout was at the highest in U.S. history, and it was also the most expensive midterm ever. Moreover, media coverage was intense at both the federal and the state levels. Although higher education was not a top issue for most voters or candidates, the results of the midterm elections could have significant implications for higher education over the next few years. What we do know is that Democrats captured the U.S. House of Representatives, won a number of state mansions, and flipped more than 340 seats in state legislatures. However, Republicans retain control of the U.S. Senate and will continue to hold sway in a majority of state legislatures. Joining us for segment one in our conversation to discuss the elections in higher ed are Jeremy Anderson, President of Education Commission of the States, and Julie Peller, Executive Director of Higher Ed Learning Advocates. Julie and Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Let's begin our conversation by focusing on the states. Jeremy, as you look at the landscape, what's changed and what do those changes mean for what will happen in the next two years? Well, there's going to be some dynamic changes, I think, in some of these states. There were 36 governor's races, but that netted 20 brand new governors who will be taking office for the first time in January. We also had eight other governors who took office in 2017 and a series of governors who either resigned or took uh, positions with the Trump administration, which means that we'll really have about 32 governors that have less than 25 months experience come January or 64% of our executive branches. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it means there's probably going to be a lot of new ideas and new policies for higher ed that are being considered. We also saw a lot of changes in some of the state legislatures. There were six states in which entire chambers switched party as to who was in the majority. Um, And we saw, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, that there are 23% of the legislators who will be freshman legislators come January. We also are going to see, I think, some changes in just state higher ed executives and who is the leader on higher ed. Um, There are five states in which the governor appoints the state higher ed executive. And um, in those five states, they have a brand new governor who will be taking office in January. So it's definitely a time of a lot of change on the horizon. Jeremy, those are the numbers broadly defined. And admittedly, we're talking about numbers over 50 states, each of which have their own policies, some of which are similar, some of which are different, some which could change dramatically because of some of these shifts in the state houses. Your best guess, two or three top issues that will emerge in some of the states because of some of these changes in personnel and politicians? Yeah, we saw a bunch of candidates who were campaigning um, specifically on free college. Um, California, Connecticut, Illinois are governors that got elected, um, and a few that um, were reelected to a second term on um, issues around free college, which they were touting work that they had done in their first election. 
Um, we also have seen a lot of discussion around accountability and a lot of discussion from a lot of the candidates for both governor and for the legislature on some of the higher ed accountability issues and how they can make sure that there are the best possible outcomes for students. Julie, let's go to the federal level. So we know that the Democrats took the House. Republicans retain control over the Senate. We're going to see some new committee chairs in both houses. Uh, Lots of different issues may emerge. We've got the Higher Education Reauthorization Act, which may or may not become important with uh, Senator uh, Lamar Alexander in the Senate. Issues about oversight, rulemaking, student aid, uh, some issues with the Department of Education most recently in terms of the change in terms of the status of accreditation for the for-profits. As you look at this landscape of politicians and policy, what do you see happening in the wake of the election? Sure. So I think that uh, certainly with um, incoming chairman Bobby Scott or presumed incoming chairman Bobby Scott, uh, the Democratic current ranking member of the committee taking poised to take over the committee, he'll do much You're talking more about in the House now. Is in the House correct? of Representatives, that's correct. Um, I expect he'll do quite a bit more oversight than um, certainly uh, his predecessor did of what rulemaking the Department of Education is and importantly is not um, doing and enforcing. Um, and that'll probably delay their uh, attention to some of the policy issues of um, much like Jeremy mentioned of affordability and accountability. When they do turn to reauthorization, I expect that, that those will be top of mind. Um, the top membership will change, but also uh, in the House of Representatives, I expect we'll see a lot of new members on both sides of the aisle uh, to join the committee. Um, and uh, they'll need to do some education and uh, get up to speed on what the issues are before they get down to business of actually legislating. So reauthorization, Julie, has been lingering for a while. Is it heresy to ask, does it really matter at this point, no matter who the chairs are in the respective houses at the federal level? I think reauthorization does matter. Uh, it Last time it was uh, rewritten was 10 years ago. And uh, higher education has changed quite a bit. Today, you know, today's students have changed, the institutions have changed, state policies have changed, uh, and it needs a, a refresh and a relook. Big issues um, do matter on who's in chair. Um, Senator Alexander has put uh, deregulation or relooking and streamlining the set of regulations for institutions of higher education, top of his agenda for a long time. Um, on In the House side, uh, Chairwoman Fox, who currently uh, leads the committee, has um, been quite protective of issues uh, around data and data uh, changes and improvement. And uh, certainly Bobby Scott sees, uh, sees that differently and thinks that um, we can make some changes around around data. So I do think that who sits in the chair will matter on some of these big issues. All right, so to, to both of you, for the first couple of minutes, we've been talking about politicians and policy. Let's go back to the voters. College costs and affordability may not have been a matter of great concern to many of them in, as they cast their ballots, but on a day-to-day -day basis, that's probably top of mind for, as families and adults, not just those who send their children off to college, but those who go back to college. We know that adults are the, another uh, slice of the new majority 
of higher education. The traditional students are only about a fourth or a fifth of the current college age population. Affordability is a big issue. Training is a big issue. As you each look at the, the states and the feds, what's going to happen there? Jeremy, let's begin with the states. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around that. We saw just on legislative action, um, just in this last year, the number of bills introduced that were related to free college or tuition assistance had gone up significantly. I think there were 48 different bills, 50 states that we had tracked just in this last year. But we also saw it being on voters' minds. Um, we saw in an era where increased funding for higher education seems to be harder and harder to come by, Three states actually pass statewide bond measures that will channel dollars to higher education. Those states are Maine, Rhode Island, and New Mexico, and these new investments have the potential to positively impact higher education in those states. So I think there's going to be a lot around affordability, around free college, and a lot of um, discussion on, you know, what are the opportunities that we can help some of these, um, some of these adult students and some of the traditional students have greater access. And Julie, what about at the federal level, uh, independent of or concurrent with reauthorization? Sure. So I think um, the conversation from a public perception point has really been independent of reauthorization. And affordability is always top of mind with voters and federal policy. Um, affordability, ability to repay student debt, um, not only how much debt that they have, but there's a, a you know, a over a billion dollar loan portfolio out there and Americans are concerned about their ability to repay that debt uh, and how the federal government is interfacing with them on that. And so that's top of mind for lawmakers. I think this also uh, changing nature of who today's students are uh, has filtered through um, and has raised a couple of questions for federal policymakers. Uh, this is largely where um, the interest in accountability and oversight is coming from, is that we know Americans, by and large, they're going to higher education because they want a job. And uh, that has changed the perception of the um, involvement of the federal government uh, and which questions to ask about student outcomes and what are they getting for their degree. Um, it also has broadened the landscape, and at the federal level, there's a big interest in talking about other kinds of post-secondary education at workplaces, through apprenticeships, uh, through shorter-term credential programs like boot camps or um, work-based training, and that has filtered into the higher education mainstream conversation in a big way. All right, so, so in the context of some of those changes, both in terms of thinking about accreditation and, and uh, by extension, accountability. This has become in many states, and even at the federal level, increasingly a political issue rather than a policy issue. Again, as, as the two of you look forward at the state level, at the federal level, well, what do you think the election results might portend in terms of accountability efforts? Uh, again, we saw, just as a reminder, we're, we're talking now at the end of November, Secretary DeVoe changed uh, through her office, some issues affecting for-profits. Will we see a, uh, that endorsed at various levels, or do you think we're going to see a pullback? Julie, let me go to you on that first. So I think that um, there have been questions about the accreditor's role and what their stamp of approval means uh, for student outcomes. Uh, and Secretary's decision to uh, to reinstate that particular accreditor um, further 
that conversation of where that role is, where that intersection and the relationship between the federal government and the accreditors as their gatekeepers, as their stamps of approval, um, is that relationship right? Are accreditors asking the right things and are they taking the appropriate actions when institutions aren't doing the, the right things by their students? Um, that the hesitation there um, for a long time has been, if not, our current set of accreditors, if not that current relationship, uh, then what? Um, and I think that's a, a question that uh, policymakers are still trying to figure out and frankly are trying to figure out on both sides of the aisle. Um, this so, is Julie, let me push you on this. Are, are you suggesting or am I just over inferring that the part of the new conversation about accountability may look at everybody and not just the accrediting for the for-profits? I think so. I think so. Um, I think in a bipartisan conversation, and it'll certainly look at um, at everyone in an oversight perspective, and particularly um, from the uh, new Democrat majority in the House. I expect that to start with the for profits, but it may not end there. And Jeremy, it's in terms of the states where we've really seen some very striking political issues about accountability, uh, what's your take about what happens? Well, I think the elections are going to bring in a lot of new people from both sides of the aisle, but accountability has still been a very prominent issue. I mean, we look just um, a couple of states just from the campaigns in California. Um, uh, newly elected Governor Gavin Newsom had a lot of conversations about a statewide higher education coordinating council aimed at really holding institutions accountable to statewide goals. And you've got to keep in mind that in California, they haven't had a real state level leadership serve in this capacity for years. In Colorado, newly elected uh, Governor Jared Polis campaigned on bolstering the authority and resources of the statewide higher education coordinating agency. And even incumbent Kim Reynolds in Iowa, um, had, she just won re-election. She reminded voters of the work that she has done on making post-secondary remediation, retention, completion rates publicly available for the state in order to hold institutions accountable. I think as higher ed is looking for ways to have more funding, many of the elected officials are first demanding some accountability and some understanding on what are the outcomes that would be achieved. As we close then, as we look ahead, what do you both see as the two or, th two or three most important issues and consequences of the midterm elections? Julie, two or three most important consequences of the recent midterms? So first, uh, oversight in the House uh, that I think questions will be asked of the administration and of the secretary that haven't been asked of her uh, yet. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Um, and the second is uh, Senator Alexander. This is his last term as chairman of the Senate Health, Education and Labor. I'm sorry, Julie, let, let's, let's put some background on Senator Alexander. Former governor, former university president. This is a guy who many would think would be bilingual and sensitive to higher ed far more than many of his colleagues. That's right. That's right. Also former secretary of education. Uh, he has quite an interest and quite a motivation. Uh, and I think it's a bit of a legacy issue for him to uh, to see high, the Higher Education Act reauthorized and uh, some of the things he's been fighting for as both chair and ranking member of that committee um, get across the finish line while he's sitting in the chair. So I think he'll be very motivated to try to move a process forward. We'll see uh, if that's bipartisan or a partisan process, uh, but I, I do think that he will try to uh, make a push for it in this Congress. And, what, and is there a third issue? Uh, the third issue is just this changing conversation about accountability and outcomes. 
Um, I'm not quite sure if it's election related. I think that the direction is moving there no matter what happened. Um, but federal policymakers are asking what students are getting uh, for the, the programs that they're attending. And that's a different conversation at the federal level. Jeremy, your t take of the two or three most important consequences of the election or the two or three most important issues ahead over the next two or three years because of the elections? Yeah, I think these elections probably have aligned three big changes that we're going to be monitoring. One is people, the second is accountability, and the third is really the economics of higher ed. On the people side, you're going to have a large number of new governors, and they have appointment authority. And in many states, they appoint large numbers of the higher ed coordinating councils. And so there may be dramatic shifts in who is actually making some of the decisions at the state level on higher ed issues, along with new legislators. On accountability, we're seeing more and more states that are pushing for greater accountability, greater outcomes, and starting to look a lot more at adult learners. And so that's going to be a change in how things have been done. The funding mechanism is what's going to be interesting in a lot of states. Without some increased funding going to higher ed, there are a lot of state institutions that have increased their tuition. And in many states, some of these state institutions are getting to the juncture that they are right at the lower end of what some of the private institutions in the state might be charging. And they're getting to a point where they're almost in competition with those private institutions and the private institutions could easily take some of the better students. This is something we're seeing in a lot of states and they're worried about and what the legislators, the governor, the appropriators do will be interesting in 2019 and 2020. Great. My thanks to you both. Jeremy Anderson, President of Education Commission of the States and Julie Peller, Executive Director of Higher Learning Advocates for an engaging and informative conversation about the recent midterm elections. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Joining us for the second segment of our conversation about the impact of the midterm elections are Danette Howard, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at the Lumina Foundation, and Elaine Maimon, President of Governor State University in Illinois. Danette and Elaine, thank you for joining us for To a Degree. So let's jump right to the conversation. Danette, what issues may dominate the public conversation about higher ed as we look to 2019? We know some issues will be with us, affordability, tuition, federal financial aid, we have the Higher Ed Reauthorization Act that's been lingering for a while. What's your take about what may also be part of this? A governance, admissions because of the Harvard case, athletics, Title IX, alternative credentialing? What's your sense? Well, thanks for having me on today. I think that as conversations about the future of work continue to dominate uh, many discussions and forums, we're going to have to contend with the question of what kinds of skills and experience learners will need to be successful not only for today, but for tomorrow and for jobs that might not even be available right now. So in order to respond to those discussions, I think we have to continue to make broadening access to post-secondary education uh, a high priority, as well as ensuring that students can be successful if they decide to pursue uh, a certificate or a degree or another credential. I think that we're also going to have to contend with the ever-changing nature of our student population. We know that many students are the first in their families to pursue a degree. Uh, we know that uh, many more students who are African-American, American Indian, and Latino are enrolling in higher education. And so what sorts of uh, supports are necessary to ensure that learners of all sorts are successful? 
Another issue is uh, many schools are in danger of, quite frankly, shutting their doors. We've seen a number of closures and mergers uh, just in the last two years, and I believe that that's going to be an ongoing trend unless we support institutions in changing their business models, which will also mean uh, changing the types of students or broadening the types of students that they recruit and intend to enroll. I'll stop there. All right, then I, you've, get, you've given me a lot to work with. I want to touch on a couple of those issues as I turn to Elaine. So, Elaine, let's, let's start with demographics and credentialing, if we may. I mean, Illinois is certainly a state that's experienced shifting, changing demographics, both in terms of the age of the population and the ethnicity of, of the cohorts that are coming into post-secondary education. Uh, Illinois has been on a bungee cord with state funding that affects the kind of infrastructure and support that Danette's talking about. Talk with us about these and related issues, if you would, please, Elaine. Yeah, yes, thank you, Casey, and I'm also delighted to be part of this conversation. I think that what Danette has brought to our attention, uh, it's not simply an Illinois issue. We're talking about a new majority of students in the United States, and that new majority is made up of first-generation, students of color, adults, and veterans. That's the, These students have always been with us, we've underserved them, but now they make up the majority of students and we have lots of worry about the diminishing number of high school graduates and how that's going to affect higher ed. And what has to happen for all of us across the country is to recognize that this new majority is the future of the United States. So I completely agree on that point. And also, Danette mentioned that we have to make sure that as we educate this new majority, that we look at the future of of work, and that means that every uh, higher education institution has to be thinking about careers, the jobs of tomorrow, uh, not that first job, which could disappear by the time the student is prepared for it, but to make sure that students have these larger critical thinking compa capacities so that they can be prepared for the fast-moving 21st century. And then the third part of what you've asked, Casey, has to do with the fact that uh, all of this takes investment. For those of us in, at public universities, it means that states have to be ready to invest in the future of their state through investing in the new majority of students. I want to push on this new majority just very quickly before we go into other topics. Isn't it the case that depending on how you cut the numbers and the data, there are really two new majorities? There's one version of the new majority that's based on age. Traditional college-age students, 18 to 22, represent a fifth at best of the headcount, or a fourth of the headcount in higher education. There's a second cut of the data that, that again, goes back to Danette's points, and your point as well, Elaine, about students of color, first generation, low income, that they, too, represent a different way of defining new majority. In each instance, the needs of these populations of these students are going to be very different. Danette? Yes, I, I think that you've made a good point. And just to build off of some of the things that Elaine said, um, you know, this new majority of students, we call them today's students, certainly are comprised of more adults, more students of color and first generation and low income students. But these students have been a part of the 
higher education and post-secondary landscape for quite some time, but we now understand that in order to uh, meet the ambitious goals that many states have set in terms of overall attainment, in order to make sure that we as a nation have the talent that we need in order to uh, fuel our economic uh, system, our labor market, that we need to make sure that more individuals from these communities and from all communities have the opportunity to develop the skills, training, and expertise that they need to land those jobs of tomorrow. And so it's just uh, providing more focus that these students are going to be a part of our learning environment uh, in ways that perhaps they haven't showed up before. And we've got to provide a different level of focus and attention for these students in ways that we haven't before. And Elaine, quickly to you about the issue of the two new majorities. Again, it would suggest different kinds of resources and support services for each of these groups as a campus president, as a campus leader, as you look at what goes on in your state and beyond. What's your take on, on the two major, new majority issue? Well, I think there's an overlap among the different groups. I, I wouldn't say that uh, there are two distinct new majorities. And at Governor State University, where I'm president, uh, we're coming to our 50th anniversary in 2019. And we have been serving uh, this group of students from our origins. And we've expanded into having additionally more traditional age students. So we've always been working to serve these students. And I think the problem with uh, the uh, issues of adult students, uh, they have left higher education often with a bad experience. Uh, we have to find them. We have to get them back. Once we get them here, I think some of the reforms in teaching and learning that we are uh, making sure happen here at Governor State are also going to be beneficial to uh, also the traditional age students and to the first generation students and the veterans and the other parts of the new majority. So I think that there is a kind of unity in the kinds of things we have to do. All right, great. I want to touch on a couple of issues that are sort of shadows of the past that remain with us as we look to the new year. The first of these is public confidence. We've seen a series of polls that suggest falling public confidence in uh, higher education, both as an institution, as, as entities, and in terms of the role that higher ed plays in preparing students of all ages for the labor market and for the future. Danielle, let me offer you an opportunity to comment on this first, and then we'll go to Elaine. Public confidence? So you're right. The the surveys and some of the data suggests that the general public does have some doubts about whether or not the investment necessary in order to earn a college degree is worthwhile. Um, I would say that there is still overwhelming data that suggests that when you earn that degree, when you earn that certificate or certification, it's certainly well worth the cost. The issue is that many Americans have have attempted credentials and haven't actually walked across the graduation stage. So when you uh, put forth your own money and effort and resources, and for whatever reason you have not been successful, but oftentimes are still left saddled with the debt based upon that attempt, then yes, you might be jaded. And I think that that is influencing this overall public perception. I think that polls and data that continue to emphasize the rising costs of college, the rising costs of tuition, also undergird uh, that lack of public confidence. And we do have to address the rising costs of college. And 
the way to addressing that is not simply by increasing financial aid, but we have to get a handle on the true costs of credentials of all sorts. Certainly, we know that there is an investment needed for bachelor's degrees, but that investment is different if a person wants a high-quality certificate or certification or associate's degree. And of course, degrees at different places, credentials at different places require a different kind of investment. Danielle, I'm going to interrupt at this point. We're going to come back to tuition in a moment. I want to give Elaine an opportunity to talk about public confidence. Elaine, you're a college president. You're a university president. You talk with your peers who deal with public confidence, whether it's in the legislature, in your local communities, all the time. What can, what must you and your colleagues do to help rebuild public confidence? Yes, I think that the narrative about higher education it really has to be changed. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of the board of the American Council of Education, and I'm very proud of the efforts that ACE is making in that regard, because what we see now is uh, media and uh, play up uh, the uh, high costs. You're going to run your family into debt. You're going to ruin everybody's life if you spend the money to go to college. And uh, those stats that are used uh, have lots of for-profit institutions thrown in there where the students have not really been served well. They have medical schools thrown in there. There, there hasn't been a disaggregation of the data. I think that uh, the Gates Foundation having us talk about these issues, and I hope lots of people go to the website and listen to it, that helps. We really have to change the narrative and help uh, families understand that uh, we in higher education and certainly at the public comprehensives, we want to help families with financial literacy. If they come to us, if, if we can guide them, if we can let them know some basic things, for example, that you have to fill out the FAFSA form and you have to fill it out early. And it's not all that hard if you just import your income tax information. And you, we also have to get the message out that uh, by uh, doing so, you're going to receive money that you don't have to pay back. Even something that fundamental is not understood. And so all, those of us who are college presidents, we have to be out there. We have to be talking to the media. We have to be making speeches at Rotary. We have to be making sure that we get this larger message out. Danette and Elaine, as we close, let's look forward. What should we be watching for the year that begins in January? Again, we've got shifts in state legislatures. We've got some shifts in, in the federal level. Are there people who may have an outsized impact on education? Uh, what about the role of innovation? We Very quickly, what's your take about sort of key issues for 2019? Elaine? Well, I think that this changing the narrative is very important. I think getting the message across that uh, for the future of the United States, for our democracy, not only do we have to prepare students for fulfilling careers, uh, but also for citizenship. That was one of the original purposes of public higher education in this country. That was the, the title of the 1948 Truman Report, Amer American Higher Education for Citizenship, along those promoting citizenship. Danette, again, I'm going to ask you to be quick as I asked Elaine, as you look to 2019, issues, topics, priorities. Well, I mentioned this in my opening comment, but I think that it's something that we really need to pay attention to, and that's around the number of colleges and universities that are closing or emerging because they are no longer financially viable. 
or sustainable? And what happens to all of the students who perhaps have been enrolling in those institutions that are often in the middle of the country or in rural areas, and they no longer have uh, any place to pursue their education? Actually, Donette, I'm going to interrupt you on that one because I think this one needs a little more depth. I've looked at those data. The vast majority of those closures over the last two years have been private for profits. And I don't think there's much in the way of tears on the part of the, the leadership of the public sector and the private nonprofit sector about those closures. There's obviously been some issues about finances for those students, the quality of the education they receive. But private nonprofit institutions, while there's been a little bit of, of uh, shake up, if you will, and certainly not much, a little bit of merger among some publics, that's been quite small compared to the private nonprofits. Why, why so much focus on, on the closure then? Well, I'm actually not referring to the private for-profits that close um, without warning. I'm referring to many small, private, not-for-profit institutions that have closed recently or on the verge of closing. If you look at Cheney University in Pennsylvania, the oldest historically black college and university in the nation. It's in a very precarious position right now and I think is illustrative of other small institutions, many that have enrollments of less than 1,000 students. Uh, there have been articles in Inside Higher Ed over the course of the last year that also speak to um, a number of Roman Catholic institutions that have closed over uh, the last uh, couple of years. And uh, I would put them in a different category than the private for-profit institutions. And so this is a conversation that is happening and that we certainly need to pay attention to because if we're keeping learners at the center, we have to consider um, what happens to those individuals when their institution, which might be the only one in the area and in which they may have invested a significant amount of time and money, um, has to shut down. Great. All right. I want to thank you both. Danette Howard, Senior Vice President at the Lumina Foundation, and Elaine Mammon, President of Governor's State University, for the conversation about looking forward into policies, priorities, people, key issues for 2019. Thank you for joining us for To A Degree. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of To A Degree, the post-secondary success podcast from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and visit our website at toadegree.com. To A Degree is produced by G2Ed. Jenny Goldstein and Casey Green are the executive producers. 